We're going to read uh, together Exodus 33, which should be printed on the sheet that you hopefully got when you came in today, or there are pew Bibles for Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. When the people held this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your garments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting, for everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out, of the t- out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, wouldn't depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favour in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favour in your sight, perhaps please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall I be known that I have found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock 
and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. Amen. So Lord, pray that you would help us now as we continue to worship by listening to your word and ask that you would uh, be shaping us into your people. Amen. If you can keep that passage there before you, that will be really helpful as we go along. If you're visiting this morning, we've been uh, in a journey through the book of Exodus. We're now towards the sort of end of that. But the big picture idea of this story through the book of Exodus is that God is freeing his people. And freedom is the ability to live under God's gracious rule in the place in which he's put them as his people. The Bible, I suppose the narrative, could be shown to go between a garden and a city. And it's all about presence in both. It begins with a garden in Eden where Adam and Eve are present before God physically. They walk alongside him in the cool of the day. That's a way of visually trying to embody what is going on, this reality of the presence and the connection and the relationship between them. And that is severed as a result of sin. And in fact, as they're moved out of the garden and out of God's physical presence, though he is still with them and is still their God, They are not able to be in God's physical presence because of sin. Sin cannot dwell in God's presence. You will be consumed. And so in mercy, there is a dislocation. The Bible culminates in Revelation with a new city, a new Jerusalem, descending from heaven. And what does Jesus say amongst other things? He said, well, behold, I'm making all things new. Behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. The brokenness and the dislocation is now at an end. And now humankind can not only know me and know my rule from a distance, they can once again know it face to face. And this is a challenge and a reality that Israel, very early on in their journey as a nation, are facing. That God has said, in light of their sin, I'm still your God, You will still have the land. I will still come good on my promises. But I can't be with you. I'll consume you. Do you see what he says? Even before you get there, I'll consume you on the way. You're a stiff-necked people. There's a threat that God may not go up with Israel into the land. And so the real point this morning in this chapter is that the blessings of God are nothing without the presence of God. Firstly, there are those first six verses, if you turn your eyes to them. There's a disastrous word, isn't there? Think of the moments where people have to deliver and have to receive disastrous news. Think about declarations of war. What that feels like to have to deliver that, to have to hear that. Think about moments in which the whole kind of economic system seems to be falling in on itself. And as long as that feels just like numbers, that feels like a thing very far off. But what that really means is that people can't can't live, can't feed themselves, can't put a roof over their head. Think of people having to explain the Wall Street crash or even in more recent times, the 2008 financial crisis. Disastrous news. Think about the feeling of receiving that disastrous news that schools are closed. The pupils will have to stay home. Disastrous news in our house. 
my emotions are very closely uh, tied and aligned to that. Imagine having to be the one who has to be at the front giving that news. Not much fun, is it? Or think of the disastrous news every sort of two to four years when it turns out England haven't won the World Cup again. <laughs> and the devastation that there is in some parts of the UK. In others, I sense, perhaps not. Well, here is a disastrous message, a disastrous word that Moses delivers for the people. The Lord said to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. God had relented from the disaster that he had intended upon the people, and he has remembered his promises to them as Moses had pled. He remembers his promises. God had promised. He had made covenant promises to Abraham before the covenant of the law with Moses that he would not back out of. He had promised to Abraham and to his descendants a land, a kingdom, where he would do everything. You can read of it in Genesis 15 and 17, a couple of instances. And hear how it's all on God. I will do this. I will make of you. I will give to you. To your offspring, I will give you this land, he said in chapter 15. And in chapter 17, I will give you all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God has remembered his promises. He says here, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. It's not going to be easy to take this land, but God would provide for them and help them beat these peoples. And it would be through an angel being sent. Instantly, we have problems here, I think, in maybe understanding this, because we have different views of angels, and a lot of it is shaped through religious artwork and shaped in a rather unhelpful uh, manner. And it maybe doesn't picture the glory of what was being offered here. We have a picture, um, firstly here, of Archangel Michael, the one who is said to have defeated Satan and his army of sort of fallen angels. But Michael here looks rather more like Michaela. He's there on the top left there, in highly effeminate, despite having a ripped body as well. So, you know, try to make sense of that. Uh, image, I, I don't know. You have Gabriel here, sort of to the far right, who looks desperately in need of a sunbed and a recurring feature of religious artwork that everybody is incredibly pale. Nobody ever has any colour, despite the fact we're talking about people living here in the Near East who would have been brown, not pasty white. You have angels portrayed all the time as being very, very interested in music. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with music. I enjoy music. But if an angel here is just coming along playing a harp or a violin, I'm, I'm not sure how this is going to help driving out these peoples too much, is it? Or you ha often have them, the smallest one there on the bottom left, simply portrayed as sort of floating, chubby babies, which again might be in some ways cute. And we all have potentially sort of nice uh, pictures of family of our own children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, what have you, which is great, yeah. But again, not much help, is it, in a conquest? There's a problem there, isn't there? That a wrong image leads to wrong theology, which leads to wrong worship. That's the problem. That's why some of the reformers, in fact, were very, very cautious about imaging anything. Because you image it wrongly, you get a very wrong idea 
and then you worship in a very wrong manner. But here the idea of this angel would be a warrior type figure. Think like Michael uh, and his angels defeating Satan, not so much in the picture, but in the reality, in the text of scripture. That's the idea of what God is offering and giving to the people here to help them. And they're going up here, verse 3, to a land flowing with milk and honey. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. The land is regularly referred to with this phrase, in fact, 11 times in Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers, all written, if you didn't know, by Moses, the same author. So it's a a recurring phrase that uh, he'll use and relay And they're being brought out of Egypt. Uh, That that was not just about a political independence and freedom, though it is. It gives them that. It's about being brought to a new land, a land that is going to grant them economic prosperity too. Milk here in these days came from sheep and goats, not so much cattle as it tends to more so with us. That means more than just they're able to have milk, but the land is good for pasturing which means it's green, which means it's fertile. It's a land flowing with honey, which here would come from wild bees, which means it's a land full of creatures and plants. This is a good land in every way. It's a good and a pleasant land, but there's a sting, isn't there? I will not go up with you. It's another test for Moses, isn't it? We saw some last week in chapter 32 but this is a test for Moses will the people go out without God in chapter 32 the test was look I'm going to get rid of this people but I'll rebuild with you in in verse 3 here of chapter 33 it's well you can go out but I'm not going to be with you and so verse 4 when the people heard this disastrous word they mourned And no one put on his ornaments. When they heard this disastrous word, they mourned. They realised this is terrible. If we go out, what's the point if God doesn't go with us? And if he doesn't protect us and he's not present with us? All that they had gone through to this point was so that they could live under God's gracious rule in the land. What is the point? of going to this new land if God doesn't go with us. And so no one put on his ornaments. Some of their earrings had been spent on making that golden calf previously. But we know from chapter 35 and when all the sort of riches are turned in that they had many more things too. Brooches, rings, armlets, all things that had been passed to them on their way out of Egypt, a sign of God's favour going with them, that they not only came out of the land, they came out of the land with all the riches with them too. But this isn't a moment for arraying themselves in this finery, is it? For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, verse 5, you are stiff-necked. You're a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. They can't follow God on their own terms. And in light of their sin, in fact, they can't even come near to God at this point. 
Take off your ornaments, he says, that I may know what to do with you. And here's a test for the people. There's a test for Moses. Are you going to bother going out if God doesn't go with you? Here's a test for the people. Will they obey God? Will they do as he says? Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onwards. The word there in the English is quite innocuous. You won't pick this up. But in the original Hebrew, the word stripped there is the same word as plunder that comes from chapter 3, verse 22, where it speaks of Israel coming out of Egypt and having plundered the Egyptians. Why? How? Because they would take the riches of the Egyptians with them. Because they would simply ask and they would be given them because God would grant them favour. And so as those riches had been ripped off of the Egyptians, now the Israelites ripped them off themselves. The people were dressed ready for a party, ready to celebrate, ready to revel as they were in the previous chapter. But this is a visible recognition that the party's over. This is serious. Although God would come good on the promise of the land, it's uncertain whether God would join them there. And so they receive a disastrous word, don't they? Their rebellion has put their relationship with God in jeopardy. There's a disastrous word, but secondly, there's a brave ultimatum. And if you look to verse 7 to 16, we'll see this. In verses 7 to 11 here, we see something of Moses' relationship with God. And Moses' relationship gives the platform from which he's going to make a very brave request that Israel simply couldn't at this point. Look at this relationship as it develops. Look at verse 7 here. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Here is a frankly inconvenient and inconspicuous pattern of worship. It's out where no one can really see. It's out of the way where you have to get up You have to take time out of your day. You have to plan to get and be there. And nobody else is really particularly going to see you. It's the very opposite of our world where we so very often desire for everything to be public, to be low cost, to be low commitment, to be spoon fed. Here the people actually have to get up and do something to get out and meet with God. It's inconvenient. It's difficult. It's out of the way. And Moses does it and has a pattern of doing this. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he'd gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When Moses goes in, it's a different experience. It's different because God is visibly present with Moses in a different way. Moses is the covenant mediator of the people, the one who is a representative between the people and God, who relays God's words to the people and relays the people's thoughts to God. We've seen him doing this previously, haven't we? Pleading for the people on their behalf. And God is visibly present there with him. And when all the people saw the pillar of clouds standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. The people can see God with their leader, which, by the way, makes the revolt of the last chapter all the more baffling. 
You've seen that this is a good leader who, for his faults, and he has them, has generally been faithful to what God has called him to thus far. And here he is regularly meeting with God, and God's presence is with him, and yet they've rebelled against him. And they'll even say things, if you can remember back to several of these revolts. Where is God with us? And yet they could see him. They could see him there with him. And yet there's more again, isn't there? Look at verse 11. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. There's something very different about Moses' relationship to God than the people's. There's something different in the proximity. Moses can approach God face to face. He can be there right before him in a way the people can't. And there's something different on the intimacy, isn't there? He can speak with God as a man speaks to his friend. They're in the same space. They're friends. It's a different level of relationship. And so, he can speak to God in a different way. And we know this in our own relationships in a lesser way, don't we? We have people in our lives at different ends of an intimacy sort of spectrum. And so they have different licenses to challenge us. We'll take a challenge from a wife or a husband, a close friend. It's much harder to take that just from a complete stranger who we don't know, we don't have a relationship with. And all of that said, we'll still complain when a wife or husband, a close friend, will do that, at least at first. But we'll take it, won't we? Because we know that it's, they don't really care about whether they offend me so much as they care about me. They're not so bothered about, well, will this offend the person? They're bothered about what's good for me. And so they sometimes are willing to say the thing I might not want to hear at first. They're sometimes willing to tell me, no. I watch sometimes a podcast with a group of actors and they're sort of talking about the show and talking about, you know, just all the realities of being a celebrity and famous and stuff and saying, you know, one of the challenges is that you actually start to get a bit of success uh, and you no longer really have people who are willing to sort of oppose anything that you say because everybody just thinks that everything that you say and think of is great. And so I'm saying they have to actually sort of seek out people who, as they put it, you know, could say, not that though, not that though. They could pitch the ideas and wouldn't be afraid to just say, no, that's no good. We need that. We need people actually who are not so bothered about offending us as they are bothered about us. And Moses has this with God. And you would think that the way round that would be is that God would do that to Moses. But interestingly here, the insight we get is Moses doing that with God. That it's mutual. They're genuinely friends. Moses can come to God and say, I don't understand this. How does this make sense? And it's a pattern and a rhythm that even Joshua is following in his wake, isn't he? He too is going into the tent after Moses and meeting with God. And so Moses' rhythm of meeting with God shows that God's blessings are really nothing without God's presence. And so then in verses 12 to 16 here, we see Moses' ultimatum. And Moses can make this because they have an intimate relationship together at the same time as Israel's relationship being completely fractured. Look at what he says here, verse 12. See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. 
Yet you said, I know you by name, and you've also found favour in my sight. You haven't told me who you're going to send with me. You said that you're not going to go. Well, who is going to go? Because how are we going to take this land? How are we going to walk into freedom if you're not coming with us? We need you to deliver us. So who are you going to send with us? And look, he's got a problem in understanding him, hasn't he? He says, yeah, you have said, I found favour in your sight. You know me my name. You're saying you're not going to come out with us. And yet you've, you've said that you've shown me favour. How does that work? And Moses is basically saying, that doesn't work to me. I don't think you do favour me. Because if you did, why wouldn't you go with us? There's this challenge, isn't it? How am I really experiencing your favour, Lord? The favour that you've said that I have, if you don't go out with us. And he's not saying that God is unjust. He's not saying he's not right to do this. But he's just saying, I don't understand. How does that fit together? You've said this, but now saying this, how do I make sense of the two? They feel to be in opposition. And so look at his response here. Now, therefore, if I found favour in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favour in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. There's three things there, isn't it? Show me your ways that I may know you, that I may understand you. And so do that, I may find that favour in your sight. He's asking God essentially, you know, look, let me in on what is going to happen here. Let me understand what's going on. And let me not anger you too, like the people have. And then look at his reasoning. He says, consider this nation is your people. Again, the word in English doesn't quite do justice to what Moses is saying. He's not saying, you know, like, oh, have a think about this. Have a ponder about it. He's saying, actually, something much more direct. He's basically saying, look, this people is your people. See, these are your people. He's not asking God to think about whether they're his people. He's telling God, they are your people. This nation is your people, Lord. This is bold. This is very brave. But this is a faithful ultimatum. And it comes because Moses does know God and Moses is his friend and so can speak like this. And so he said, the Lord in response, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. God gives what Moses asks himself. And therefore, Moses can be confident that they're going to take the land and they're going to have peace because God is with them himself. But look at Moses' response because he's not happy just to leave it just there, is he? He wants to push this a little further. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favour in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we're distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? He's not happy just to accept the yes to the request. It's if you're not going to do this, Don't bother sending us out. That idea of us going out, but you not with us, no. We either die out here or we go out with you. There's no in-between of us going out and just trying to be a nation like every other nation. What's the point? What's it all been for? And Moses has finally got it. 
Because everything to this point in the story of Exodus has all been about Israel being set up as God's distinct people. That's why God was so angry with the rebellion. But Moses has got it. And he makes a brave ultimatum through his relationship with God. And it will save the future of the people here. There's a disastrous word, a brave ultimatum. And then lastly, there's this glorious encounter, isn't there? I don't know if you caught um, this story this week in the news. This is about the biggest black hole that we now sort of know of, at least, um, that has been discovered by the disappointingly named Very Large Telescope uh, in Peru, which I feel like that must be a translation of the Spanish, surely. That can't have actually been the name uh, that the focus group came up with. But it's an amazing sort of little picture there uh, you've got of it. Um, but I was taken by the way that the writer described this. At one point, the very catchily named J0529-4351 was actually recorded in data many years ago, but its true glory has only just been recognised. It says, we've discovered an object which has previously not been recognised for what it is. It's been staring into our eyes for many years because it's been glowing at its brightness for longer than humankind has probably existed. But we've now recognised it, not as being one of the many foreground stars in our Milky Way, but as a very distant object. This is the problem for Israel. They have not recognised the true glory of God who is there with them. And it's crazy because they have before them the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And yet they don't get it yet. And so here is a glorious encounter. Look at verse 17. The Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you've spoken, I will do. For you have found favour in my sight, and I know you by name. And that feels, perhaps, if you look there closely, there's simply a repeat of verse 12. That I know you by name, and you have my favour. But it responds to what Moses has asked in verse 13, that I may know you in order to find favour. You have found favour in my sight. I know you by name. See, Moses was saying, you say that you know me and that I'm favoured, but I don't know you and I don't feel your favour. And God is saying in response, yeah, but I know you and that's what matters and whether you feel it or not I do favour you you have found favour verse 18 Moses said please show me your glory and Moses still wants to know that what God has said is true by an experience show me let me see let me understand and he said I'll make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God shares his presence with Moses. He shares his name with him. And he shares something of his nature with him. That he will do what he will do. He will be who he will be. He is who he is. He is beyond understanding. I will have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. That God's salvation, God's rescue is dependent on God's sovereign election, his choice, his word, his promise, 
and nothing else. And he doesn't owe anything to anyone, but he will be gracious to whom he will be gracious. He'll be compassionate to whom he'll be compassionate. He will be merciful to whom he'll have mercy on. And yet, for all of this, there are big limitations for Moses, aren't they? Because even Moses can't see God's face. He's simply not capable of seeing that much glory in one moment. It tells us that verse 11 there, where it talked about Moses speaking with God face to face, that's uh, the fancy word is an anthropomorphism. It's when something is actually beyond kind of human terms and understanding. You try to put it in human terms to try to understand it, but it's not really happening. He's not really there before God's face, but it's a way of trying to describe the intimacy and the closeness that is there. And there's an irony here, isn't there? That all the while, the people had abandoned God. Psalm 106 picks up this story. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their saviour, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. And yet Moses is shown a new level of glory, isn't he? Moses has a privileged access and relationship to God. But Moses has been feeling and observing the distance that there still was between them. He is close, yet he feels there's so much that he doesn't see. There's so much he doesn't know. There's so much he doesn't get. And things that God must simply withhold because he can't possibly comprehend them, Moses. God gives a glorious encounter that reassures Moses, that confirms their relationship and the future support. The people had exchanged the glory of God for an image of God that they had made. They did, in fact, by so doing that, exactly what Egypt had done. They made gods in their own image, gods in the image of creation, Gods they had made and that they essentially controlled. There were no gods at all. But that's a problem and a reality that has faced every generation of people ever since. That God is beyond and above our thoughts, our reasoning, our control and our comfort. Paul, in the letter to Romans chapter 1, he says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. That is, there is enough of who God is to be seen in the world. So he says, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they didn't honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The heart is an idol factory and it will make a god of anything and everything if it's given the chance. The people exchanged the glory of God for an image of God they'd made. But secondly, God gave hope through an encounter with his glory to Moses. Though they couldn't fully grasp or handle God in his full glory, he allows Moses to see some of it. The people were separated from God's glory 
And for Moses, he only gets to see it partially. But for us, in looking to Jesus, we can see all the fullness of God's glory. Look how John begins his gospel. John chapter 1 verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Through Jesus, we can see everything we would ever need to see of God in him. All of the fullness of the glory of God is there in looking to Jesus in a way that Moses here gets a glimpse of a part of God. We can encounter him fully in Jesus. And thirdly, lastly, through Jesus, we can now approach God's glory confidently and be transformed. The people here couldn't approach God's glory with any confidence. And even Moses had to be protected, didn't he? Had to be shielded and covered in the cleft of the rock behind God's hand. He could only see God's back. But through Jesus, we are able to approach his glory and be transformed by it. 2 Corinthians 3, Paul writes, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. What's he talking about? When Moses would go to the tent and he would meet with God and he'd be in his presence, his face would physically glow as a, a reality of that experience that he's sharing. And what would happen is he would come into the camp and they would see that. But of course, two, three days later, the glory starts to fade. Everyday life kicks in. What was once so visible fades away. And so he put a veil on his face so that people wouldn't see that process. But, Paul says here, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What once only Moses could experience, and him only in part, and in him only for a time where it then faded, we all now can experience in fullness, in a way where it does not fade. In fact, actually, it's the very opposite. We're transformed again and again from one degree of glory to another until he returns and we are like him, for we will see him as he is. A new freedom, a new confidence and boldness for any one of us to approach God in all his fullness through Christ by the Spirit. And so there's a warning. Not to exchange God's glory for an imitation or a caricature. Secondly, an encouragement that through Jesus we can understand what we once couldn't about God. And thirdly, a charge to approach God through Jesus and be transformed by his glory. Why don't I pray? And then we will continue worshipping by singing two more songs together as we close our time together. So as I pray, the, the others will take their places.
Father, we thank you for your grace, that you are gracious to whom you'll be gracious, you're merciful to whom you'll be merciful. And you have chosen to be gracious and merciful to us. And what we once could not understand, what we once could not approach, you have welcomed us into through Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that we do not go out this week alone, but we go out with you as your people into the world. And so, Lord, I pray this morning where we might, like Moses, be wanting some reassurance that what you have said is true in our experience, that we really are known by you and know you, that we really are favoured by you, would you help us, Lord, to have faith in your word? As you said to Moses here, I know you and you are favoured. That, Lord, we would know that ourselves. For those of us placing our faith and trust and confidence in you, you know us and that's what matters. And you do have your favour over us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be a blessing out in the world to those who place us around, that we would be salt and light this week in the places that you send us, that we would be able to give confident reason for the hope that you've given in us. And Lord, maybe for those of us who are not sure at what point we're at with our faith, that Spirit, you would be working within them to come to faith, to know that you know them and your favour is there for them, not on what they've done, not on what they know, not on who they are, but on what the Lord Jesus has done and who he is and what he is. So Spirit, pray that you would be doing that deep work within our hearts today and the rest of this week and beyond for our good and for your glory. Amen.